Good morning. Let's try that again. I think you're out there. I can't see anybody, but I can, I can hear to some degree. Good morning. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Mr. Marsha. Uh, <clears throat> that's what I'm affectionately called, particularly in the children's area, because I have the distinct honor and privilege of being our children's minister's Marsha Flynn's husband. I'm also known as uh, Pastor Jeff and as Ranger Jeff. Uh, that's another one of my wonderful opportunities that I have back in the children's ministry is to be Ranger Jeff on the Discovery Trail with a number of our students. So I'm really excited to be here with you all this morning. Those of you who are expecting to hear from Pastor T, sorry to disappoint you. There is a reason why he doesn't tell people when he's gone. And, uh, but he is actually, uh, we need to be in prayer for him. He's with our team uh, in Haiti. And they are on mission there in Haiti and will be this week. And we want to remember them in prayer. But I have the privilege of being able to take the next step in our journey this morning um, in a life that follows Jesus. This is a series that T started last week. And so I'm going to take the next step with you. Uh, in this journey today, and we're going to be looking at a story that you've probably heard a number of times, and this is the feeding of the 5,000, but we're really not focusing on the feeding of the 5,000. What we're going to do is we're going to look at an event that happened right before that miracle, and how that impacted the life of Jesus and his disciples, and yet how God even was able to use that event in their life in bringing about the miracle that happened with the feeding of 5,000. But before we get started, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as, I, as I'm here and I look out over the crowd, I, I realize that we're all here and uh, we each bring our own uh, issues with us as we come in here this morning. Um, we have our own hurts and our own habits, our own hang-ups, and we have our own celebrations that we all bring here today. But we come here with one heart, and that's to really hear from you and to surrender ourselves to follow you. And I pray that as we do that this morning, God, that you would just bless us and that you would help us take the next best step in surrendering to follow Jesus. And it's in his name we amen. I'm crackling this morning, and so I don't know what the deal is. I think it's my magnetic personality. Um, it's messing with the, the, the electronics, but we'll go ahead and go on. I'll just pretend I'm a TV preacher this morning. A lot of them carry handheld mics. I don't know why, but anyway. This morning, our passage of Scripture um, comes from the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to uh, look at uh, verses 13 through 21. But before we get into that, I want to, as a way of introducing you to what we're going to be looking at this morning, I want to take a step back into the earlier parts of the chapter, uh, if you would. And uh, I want to look at, um, start in the 14th chapter with verse 3. Now, King Herod had arrested John the Baptist and bound him, put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. And Herod wanted to kill John, uh, but he was afraid of the people because they considered 
John the Baptist a prophet. So on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever that she asked for. So prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Um, And the king was really distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted, and he had John beheaded uh, in the prison. And his head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came, and they took his body, and then they buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. Now, this is not a good event. As the background to the the story of the feeding, the miracle of feeding 5,000, I want you to understand a little bit of the history. Here we have John the Baptist, who happened to be the cousin of Jesus. And and they were tight. Now, I don't know about your relationship with your cousins. Uh, I had some very interesting cousins. And... um, And we were fairly close, but we just didn't live that close to each other. But we weren't close like John and Jesus were. I mean, John and Jesus were so close that before they were even born, when their mamas got together, uh, Elizabeth, who was John's mama, uh, when she got with Mary, who was Jesus' mama, uh, John was so excited to see Jesus, it said that, you know, that he jumped up and down with joy. Now, I'm certain that Elizabeth didn't really get into that. And after that happened, I'm sure she thought, I don't think we really want to visit them anymore. It's not so good for me. But they were that close. John was so excited about the coming of Jesus. Even before they were born, he was excited about it. And they grew up together. And then they went into ministry. And John's ministry, he was a little bit different than Jesus. He was more of your hellfire and brimstone type preacher. He was a little kind of different. Uh, He wore, you know, camel skins, and he kind of smelled like a camel, and he ate um, honey, and uh, he was a real naturalist, you know. And he would preach that people needed to turn from their sin and would offer them the opportunity to then um, be baptized. And Jesus loved John. He loved how straightforward John was. He loved that John spoke the truth. And not only were they really good friends and close cousins and everything, but John actually baptized Jesus. The first official religious experience in Jesus' life was very significant. Jesus came to John and said, I want to be baptized. And John said, whoa, you don't need to do this. I know who you are. You're You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You don't need to do this. And, and Jesus said, in obedience to the Father, I need to do this. I, I want people to be able to see in me what I'm wanting them to do. And so John baptized Jesus, and when he came up out of the water, the, the Holy Spirit fell on Jesus, and you heard from the, the sky the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And, and John was a part of that miraculous experience in the launching of Jesus' ministry. And after that, he went into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and, and Jesus' ministry began. They were there together like that. And their disciples were really close. They knew each other. Some folks thought that they were in competition with one another, but that was not the case. All right, so you get a little bit of that history of how tight they were. 
And John tended to shoot his mouth off. He would just tell folks the truth. You've met these kind of folks, I'm sure. You probably have got one in your family. They just can't help themselves. If it's in the head, it's out the mouth. You know what? And, and John just, he spoke the truth. Now, he may have spoken it in love, but he still told it like he saw it. And here was the problem. King Herod had decided to dump his wife, which is not a good thing. And then he decided that he was going to pick up his brother's wife, which was two not really good things. And so John called him on it, and he called her on it. And he said, this isn't pleasing to God. I don't know who you think you're, you're fooling, but this is not God's plan. You can say we love each other, and it didn't work out with the other one. or You can say whatever you want to, but sin is sin, and this is wrong. Well... Herod did not like that, and he wanted to put him to death, but Herod was a chicken. And Herod knew that, uh, that if he ended up killing John, that all the crowds would be after him. And so Herodias, his wife, she was, she was a schemer. And she was going to get the deed done, and Herod wouldn't really have to take the blame for it. So... I know that you have never met conniving women like this. They don't really exist except for in the pages of the history of, you know, in uh, uh, the Bible. But she was a conniving woman, and so this is what she set up. She said, we're going to have a great birthday party for Herod, and what we're going to do is, she told her daughter, I want you to dance for him, and we're going to get him snockered. And he's going to get drunk, and he's going to be so happy with how you dance, he's going to promise you anything you want. And she's going, all right, I'm going to get my own chariot and I'm going to have like, you know, four horses that go with it and all this. And her mom says, no, this is not about you. Even though he's going to promise you everything, this is what you're going to do. You're going to ask for John the Baptist, who I hate. You're going to ask for his head on a platter. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know too many teenage girls that think, uh, that their reward for doing a really good dance would be some dude's head on a platter, you know? But that's what she asked for. She obeyed her mom, and sure enough, they got him snockered. He didn't know what he was doing, and he promised her in front of all the guests that she could have whatever she wanted. And she said, okay, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And it was like, wow. I don't think I should have asked that or should have said that I'll give her anything. And I'm sure he stepped back and he said, wouldn't you rather have like a chariot and some horses? Or how about a tiara? Would you like a tiara? I'll throw you a party and you can have all your friends over. Would you like a cell phone? How about a TV? But no, she wanted, because of her mom, she wanted John's head. And so he really didn't have much choice, so he ordered for John to be beheaded. And they brought it to him on a platter. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be a real party stopper for me. But somehow they celebrated the fact that this man, that they had gotten even with him and killed him. Well... The tradition is that more than likely what happened to the body of John the Baptist is that uh, he was just thrown over the, uh, over the gate of the, um, on the outside of the city. 
and left there. And they called his, his disciples to come and pick him up. said, uh, John's been killed. We took his head off. You can have the rest of his body. So they came and they claimed him. And after they buried him, then they came back to Jesus and the disciples and they said, I don't want to do this, but we've got to tell Jesus. I know they were really tight. Have you ever lost somebody that you really love? Have you ever had somebody taken tragically from you? No warning, bam, they were gone. You were really close to them. It may have been a cousin, a mom, a dad. Somebody killed in a car wreck or something uh, tragic. They were, they, were, they were murdered. See, that's what happened to John. He was murdered. And they came back to Jesus and they told him, they said, Jesus, we hate to tell you this, but John, your beloved cousin, is dead and Herod killed him. They cut his head off. And they're parading his head around town. He's claiming that this is a great thing. I don't know about you, but I cannot imagine how that affected Jesus. You know, Jesus was all God and He was all man. He, he, he felt what you and I felt. We see it throughout Scripture. Uh, when Lazarus died and they were really close and nobody uh, and, and they blamed Jesus that because he didn't show up on time, he could have healed Lazarus, but because he didn't show up on time, Lazarus died and his sisters were really mad at Jesus and they began to blame him and Jesus wept. I mean, he was broken about that. And he and Lazarus was close, but they were not anywhere near close like he and John were. I can't, this man, he, he was broken. Can you imagine what the pain of that would have been like? You wake up one day and then you find out in the middle of the day when you're going about your life and doing everything that you do, bam, life is automatically changed. This was the introduction to Jesus about the wages of sin and death and how He experienced that on a human level. Wow. Unbelievable. You see, Herod wanted to send a message to Jesus and all the other disciples, you guys mess with me and I will have your head. He wanted to stop them from preaching the gospel, from confronting them and anybody else about sin. And just like ISIS, he beheaded them. And use that as an opportunity to be able to instill fear into them so that they would stop doing what they were doing. That wasn't Jesus' reaction. But let me tell you folks, Jesus was introduced very much to the reality that sin really hurts. And sin kills. And following Jesus means that we will hurt and we will suffer in this life. If Jesus was not spared any kind of suffering, then we aren't spared it either. And we get this crazy thinking that because we become believers, that that means that God is going to shut off uh, the, us living in the reality of this place that we live in, and we won't be touched by things like murder. We won't be touched by the pain of losing a loved one. We won't be touched by uh, the pain of uh, not being able to have a child. or We won't be touched by any of the pains in life because we are insulated because we are now, God, now God's child. And that's not the truth. The truth is you and I live in a broken world. And we are going to be touched by it in our life. 
It will, that stink of sin is going to get all over us at one point or another. Now here's the real teaching. Jesus did not say, I've come to protect you from the pain of life. He didn't. But He's come to tell us that He has overcome the world and the pain of life. And if He is an overcomer because of His death, burial, and resurrection, you and I can be overcomers regardless of whatever pain in life we may discover. Whatever we may come up against, Jesus wants us to know that we can be overcomers just like He is an overcomer. And so here we are wanting to learn more and more what it means to be a follower of Jesus, an imitator of Jesus. And so here's a real clear teaching that He gives us in Scripture. You want to follow Me, you're going to run into at times pain in your life. Let me give you some instruction about how you can manage when this stuff happens, and it will. Number one, how did Jesus respond in pain? Number one, He withdrew. He withdrew. Um, Our Scripture, Matthew 14, 13 13-21, says it this way. When Jesus heard what had happened to John, He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed Him on foot from all the different towns. And when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, He had compassion on them, and He healed their sick. And as evening approached, the disciples came to Him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves and bread and two fish. Um, they answered. He said, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples and they gave them to the people. Number one, Jesus in dealing with pain, he withdrew. Now, Jesus, we see several times in scriptures Jesus doing this. Even uh, the night that he was betrayed and that he was going to, to go to the cross, he withdrew with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane so that he could be there in prayer with the Father. Uh, as he prepared to go through and as he dealt with the pain that was coming, he, he withdrew. Now, let me tell you what he did not do. Jesus, when he encountered the pain of the loss of John, he did not give up. He did not quit. He did not retreat. He did not surrender. He withdrew. Let's unpack that a little bit and see what what that is like because we see that happen over and over and again in the life of Jesus that he would withdraw to a lonely place with his disciples so that they could rejuvenate, recharge. It is normal. Uh, in the process of recovering from trauma. Whenever trauma uh, happens in our life, this is what usually happens in the life of a person. The first thing is, according to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she's, uh, she wrote a book on death and dying and how we handle tragedy like that, the first thing is shock and denial. It's like, wow, that didn't really happen. You know? 
uh, I can't believe that. I used to work, um, when I first started in ministry, I was a chaplain in a level one trauma center. And part of my job was to be there with people when they came in uh, after uh, gunshots, horrendous wrecks, uh, loved ones killed, maimed. They were going to have to go to ICU. And I saw it over and over and over again, you know, where people would just be in absolute shock. They couldn't believe what had happened had happened. And they didn't want to believe it. And, and so many times they chose not to believe it. And sometimes they sat there with utter blank, you know, faces. Sometimes they were absolutely broken. But invariably, the process is the same. They start out with shock, and they're in denial, and then as the denial begins to wear off and you really realize it happened, it, it, it turns to anger. You're really mad about what happened. You're really hurt about what happened. You want to take revenge on whoever it was that may have participated in this tragic thing happening in your life, and, 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 and you want to retaliate and... Then you begin to move through that, and sometimes folks are t can enter into depression where you just don't know what to do. You don't know how to manage. You begin to feel lost, and you give up, and, or you just tune out, and, and, and you lose all kind of hope for your life. And it's a process, and you may work through that. And as you do, then you begin to discover healing again to where you can reorient, regroup, and re-engage in life. Well, Jesus being all human and all God, when he, he lost John, he was in shock. You know, his world was shaken. His disciples were freaking out. They did this to John. Guess who's next? They're coming after us, dudes. You know some of that feeling. You remember 9-11? Do you remember where you were when 9-11 happened and our country was under attack? Do you remember that feeling inside of you of not knowing what was going to happen next? I do. I was in my car and I was listening on the radio to all of this stuff happening. I was on my way to my office. At that time, I was seeing clients as a therapist and I had a docket full of people, and I was to actually leave that afternoon to go to another location in Sinatobia, Mississippi, to see folks out of a church there. And I remember thinking, my brother, Jimmy, he, he worked um, for the uh, Army Missile Command, and lots of times he was at the Pentagon. And I remember when the Pentagon was hit with all of that, thinking, oh my word, is Jim okay? And I remember calling him and trying to find out if he was okay, and he didn't answer. And I didn't know what was going on with him. And the reason he didn't answer was because he was at Redstone Arsenal, and at that point, they locked everything down and put everybody in bunkers. And the reason was is they didn't know what was happening next. They had no idea what was coming next. And the idea was to survive that moment so that you could then get on to the next. Now can you put yourself in Jesus' position? These folks were under attack. They didn't know what was going to happen next. They were in absolute shock. And Jesus' response was, look guys, we need to regroup. We need to take a little bit of time here, and we need to withdraw into the Father's presence because 
Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are labor and, and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, Jesus knew how to find rest, and that was in retreating to the Father. We naturally do that a lot of times when we're in shock. We want to pull back. We want to retreat. I, I, I need to take off work. I need to quit teaching kids. I need to pull out of this ministry or that ministry. I, I need to get out of this relationship. I, we, we, we retreat, but oftentimes we retreat and then we quit. We give up. We don't re-engage. We surrender. And we see in the life and ministry of Jesus, that did not happen. See, our normal response to trauma is that we tend to withdraw a lot of times. And modern withdrawals look like this. Some of us withdraw into food. I'm a witness. You know, I tend to withdraw into carbohydrates. That, that is what it, it, it gives me a funky high that allows me to deal with junk in my life. And so I will, I will withdraw into pasta. I will withdraw into donuts. Don't look at me like you don't do any of this stuff because I know some of you do. You know? Yeah, I withdraw into pasta. That's why they call me Pasta Jeff. Some of you all will catch that in a minute. <clears throat> pasta Jeff. Okay. Um, others of you, you may withdraw into drinking. You may withdraw into sex. You may withdraw into uh, medicating yourself. You may withdraw into television. You may withdraw into uh, over-exercising. You take it to the ith, nth degree. When we withdraw, we can withdraw into all kinds of things that can be healthy at times, and we can withdraw into things that are completely unhealthy, and they do not help us to recover. Actually, they can end up becoming the problem, another problem in and of themselves. But Jesus, He retreated to a quiet place to be with the Father so that He could retool, regroup, refocus, and re-engage. And that's what you and I need to do. Jesus learned through what He suffered. You would think Jesus, because He's the Son of God, He didn't need to learn anything. Let me tell you one thing He needed to learn. The Scripture says He learned obedience through what He suffered. He learned to be able to set Himself aside and His agenda aside, even with pain, in order to continue to follow what God was calling Him to do. And you and I, in the midst of suffering, one of the things that we can learn is obedience to God, that beyond what we may think or what we may feel, we can absolutely trust the Father. And that when we retreat to Him and regroup and reorient, uh, reorient ourselves to what God's desire and purpose is in our life, we will get through whatever it is. If we retreat into other stuff, we're going to get derailed every single time. And the other thing that Jesus learned is He learned what it's like for you and me to live in this broken world and the pain that comes through it. Jesus learned very personally how sin affects people and how that brokenness hurts. 
And then what do you have what can you do with it? So sometimes to follow Jesus, we must withdraw, but we must not quit. We don't need to give up and we don't need to stay withdrawn. So to follow Jesus, we must learn to move beyond our own personal pain and re-engage in life. Number two, we move beyond our personal pain so that we can learn to re-engage in life. Healing does not come in retreat alone. Uh, modern psychology tells us uh, that one of the, the, the things that's important in recovering from trauma, which is exactly what this was, this was a traumatic event that affected the life of Jesus and all of his disciples, that one of the things that we've learned, unfortunately, through all of the traumatic events that have happened in these school shootings, and stuff like that. One of the things that we have learned is that our instinct is to say, I need to get away, I need to withdraw, I need to hide, I need to protect myself. I don't want to go back there. And uh, instinct of a parent is when something traumatic happens like that with your kid, you take them out of school, you keep them home, you don't want to send them back into that unsafe place. But here's the reality. What we have learned is that when you re-engage and you go back into your schedule, whatever that schedule may be, that offers a, a type of holding for you. Something predictable that you're used to, that you understand. And it actually helps in the healing process instead of hurting. The more that we withdraw and stay away and, and don't re-engage anymore in what our natural kind of path would be and what our normal routine would be, the longer we often stay in dis-ease. Now, it's the same way physiologically. Fifty years ago, if you had had a heart attack, what the doctor would probably prescribe for you is for you to go to bed. They would keep you in the hospital. They would keep you sedated and in bed and rest. That was before they developed angioplasty where they could go in there and kind of rotor-rooter your veins and stuff and put a little stent in there. And nowadays what happens, if you have a heart attack, they go in there, they rotor-rooter you, they put a stent in there, and then they want to get you up and out as quickly as possible. You'll get out sometimes the same day. Go home. And they want to get you moving. Back in the old days, in the hospital, if you were to have surgery, you would be down for weeks. My dad had gallbladder surgery, and uh, he was, it was a two-week ordeal. He was in the hospital. They kept him in bed, and, oh, he didn't want to get out because it was so painful. I had gallbladder surgery. They went in, put three holes in my belly, blew me up like China, took my little gallbladder out, except for it wasn't all that little I understood. They took my gallbladder out, they plugged my holes, and they said, once you can go to the bathroom, you can go home. I'm going, I don't want to go. You just did surgery on me. You blew me up like China. And they said, sorry, your insurance isn't going to pay for you to stay here. You're going home, brother. And guess what? I went home the same day. I walked around my house. I ended up back in the hospital two days later, but that's a whole other story. But they don't let you lay around anymore. They've discovered that healing takes place when we re-engage, even when we're hurting. You know what? Jesus knew already about that. 
Here he was, he withdrew with his disciples. He said, let's get in the boat, we're going to go to a quiet place. Well, that didn't really happen in the life of Jesus very often. Wherever folks knew Jesus was, he attracted a crowd. And this time it was no little crowd. He attracted 5,000 people. They get out to the other side and they realize, wow, the news must have gotten out that we're out here. So now what are we going to do, brothers? And they're all going, well, I don't know. Let's send them back home. And Jesus said, no. Let me tell you, I'm hurting. I know you guys are scared. You're hurting too. See all those people out there? Some of them have gone through exactly what we're going through. When 9-11 happened, I had a list of people that I was to see that day. And at first I thought, no, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I'm, what's going to happen. I don't know where my brother is. I think I'm going to just take today off. And then I thought, I, I can't do that. There, there are folks that are coming to see me because they're really hurting in their life. There are folks that are coming and they're really hurting and now they're really freaked out. They don't know what to do. Um... Maybe it will be more of a help for me to hang in there and focus on something I can do something about as opposed to focusing on something I can't do something about. And I am not about to let these terrorists put me into hiding. And so I decided I was getting up and I was traveling to Senatobia and I saw folks that day. And you know what? There wasn't a single person that failed to show up. Everybody showed up. And they brought their pain with them. And I got to see God move in their lives that, in ways that I wouldn't have been able to see before. And not only did God move in their life, but God moved in my life. See, we need to retreat sometimes. We need to get away. Sometimes we need to pull back, but we don't need to surrender. Whatever you're feeling or ex experiencing in your life right now, God has got a plan to be able to take that pain that has been so detrimental in your life, work inside of you to bring about healing and then turn around and use that very thing that hurts you so much in the life of another person because they're hurt people too. And he said, Jeff, how do you know that? I don't really know that. And I said, I'll tell you why. Every single Monday night I'm here. Most every Monday night. And I'm here at Celebrate Recovery. Why am I here at Celebrate Recovery? Because I'm a person in recovery. And I have personally experienced how God is taking some of the trauma that's happened in my life, redeeming it, and using it to benefit other people. I see it every night that I'm here. I hear the story of a person who was involved in alcohol and drug abuse and their life was absolutely on the rocks and it ruined their family life and they got arrested. They ended up in jail and felt absolutely hopeless that nothing good could happen ever again only to discover that there is a God who loves us, that has a plan for us, that can redeem anything. There ain't nothing too dirty. There's nothing too awful that He cannot redeem, that He cannot use. And I see people stand up here and share their testimony about all the, the, the yuck that God brought them through, but that's not the focus of their testimony. Their testimony is really about how God redeemed that, is brought about healing in their lives, and is taking their personal story 
and using it redemptively in the life of another person to give them hope so that they can experience healing. And I see it every Monday night. I see people who have had courage to be able to admit to stuff that has happened in their life. Men and women be able to say, I was abused sexually as a, uh, as a child. It's been destructive in my life. I've wanted to hide and keep it a secret forever. And I've withdrawn and retreated, but God has called me out to be able to at least own it. And I can speak it now. And God is bringing about healing in my life. And because of that, I can stand up and I can say to somebody else out there who's keeping silent about it, look, there's healing for you. There's opportunity. There's hope. I'm a living proof of it. If I can get through it, you can get through it. Jesus wasn't about to let His disciples hunker down and, and hide in a cave. He looked out there and He saw 5,000 people and He said, we got to do something about this. There's a story that Henry Nowen in his book, The Wounded Healer, tells. And it's a story out of the Talmud, and I want to share it with you. It's about, um, it's about the Messiah and understanding, being able to know when He comes. And there are these uh, prophets. <clears throat> There's the prophet Elijah. And uh, um, he's standing there at the entrance of Rabbi Simeron ben Yohai's cave. And uh, the rabbi asked Elijah, when will the Messiah come? And Elijah replied, go and ask him yourself. <laughs> he says, well, where is he? And Elijah responds, you'll find him sitting at the gates of the city. He's going, how will I know him? I mean, the city gates, that's a big, there are a lot of people around there. All kinds of folks coming in and out of the city. There's beggars and all of that. How am I going to know him? And he said, you'll find him sitting among the poor, covered with wounds. The others will unbind all their wounds at the same time, and then they'll bind them up, up again. But he unbinds one at a time and binds it up again, saying to himself, perhaps I shall be needed, and if so, I must always be ready so as not to delay for a moment. Wow, what a picture of our Messiah. What a picture of Jesus. How are you going to find Him? How are you going to know Him? He's going to be covered in wounds just like everybody else. He's going to be hurt by this life just like everybody else. But one thing you're going to see that is really different from Him the other wounded people who come to the city gates to be able to beg for money, they uncover all their wounds because, you know, if they sit there in the sunshine, then there can be healing that can come from it. But the other thing is it lets everybody look at them and see how poor and helpless they are, and hopefully they'll give them some money. But the Messiah, even though he's wounded like everybody else, he's not going to just uncover himself and sit there for everybody to feel sorry for him. What he's going to do is he will bandage his wounds, and he'll unbandage them one at a time so as not to be completely uncovered. He's going to tend to his hurt. And then if somebody comes and they're in need, he'll be able to have time to bandage up quick enough to be able to tend to their need. That's exactly what we see in this picture. Jesus was wounded to the core. And yet, he was able to reach out even beyond himself. 
to the 5,000 because they were starving and they were hurting and there were people that needed to be healed, folks that needed demons cast out of them. And he saw that need and he reached out to them even while he was hurting, even while the disciples were hurting. And they were going, look, okay, we've done great things. Let's send these folks home. We don't have enough food. (laughs) There isn't enough food to take care of them. Number three, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, this is what you've got to learn. You need to offer what you have today. What you've got right in front of you, not what you're going to have tomorrow, not what you think you may need. You need to offer exactly what you've got. If you're wounded, you offer those wounds. You're going, no, uh, yeah, I think as really good religious people, we need to wait until everything's fixed and taken care of and we don't look wounded anymore and we look super healthy and we're the absolute pillar and epitome of everything good that can happen and we'll offer that because that's what people really want. Baloney. People don't want perfect people because there's no such thing. A perfect person is just somebody that's pretending to be that way. Not real. And so they said, well, there's 5,000 people that got food. What, what are you going to do about it? He said, what am I going to do about it? <laughs> what are you going to do about it? We're in this together, brothers. Y'all go and feed them. We can't feed them. We don't have enough money. What do we got? Little kid comes up. He's got loaves of bread and some fish. He said, use what you got. And they began to pass it out. And God in His grace multiplied it. And the next thing you know, 5,000 men were fed. Who knows how many women and children were there. But 5,000 men were fed. Jesus used what was right there because it was given to Him. I don't know what your pain is, what your hurt is, what your habit is, what your hang-up is, but I can promise you this. God wants to bring about healing in your life right now where you are. And in your woundedness, He wants to use that so somebody else can benefit. He wants to use what you got right now. He's not looking for you to get fixed and bring it to Him later. He wants to use it right now. I haven't got very much. I've only got a couple of fish. I want to use it right now. He wants to use what we have, our brokenness, our fear, our failure. And you know what? When that boy surrendered and let Jesus have it, not only was he blessed, but 5,000 people were blessed. You may not think that God can do anything and use anything in your life. You're too broken right now. And that's a lie. Let me tell you what will happen when you surrender where you are and what you've got. God will take that. He will use it. And He will bless you. And He will use that to bless 5,000 or way more than you could ever even imagine, hope, or think. See, there's nobody that enters this world and doesn't get the stink of sin and escapes without any hurt. There isn't a single one of us here that does that. Jesus suffered because of sin, and so you and I will too. And God wants to redeem your suffering. He calls us to retreat, regroup, 
Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, it says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, those that are just shackled, weighed down with stuff, come to me, and I will give you rest. And then let me tell you what else we're going to do. Then you're going to take my yoke upon you. And a yoke was a, a thing an animal used. They, they linked two, of them, two oxen up together so that they could get work done. He said, Come to me, I'm going to give you rest, but then we're getting back at it. And I'm going to put you in the fight again. And you're not going to be alone. You're going to be with me. I'm going to help you do this. But we're not going to sit down. And we're not going to quit. And we're not going to surrender. And you're not going to stay sick unless you choose to. You're going to come to me and I'm going to hook you up. And I'm going to redeem your pain. And I'm going to use it. We're going to plow some ground. We're going to tear some stuff up. God wants what we have. He'll take it. He'll bless it. He'll multiply it. He'll use it to bless us. And He'll use it to bless others. But we must own it. We can't run away from it. We have to be willing for Him to address it. Let me pray over you. God, I pray today for every person that's in the sound of my hearing. I pray for healing. I pray for folks to have courage to face whatever it is that needs to be faced. The pain in their life that just drives them into isolation. God, that You would invite them out into healing. Thank You, God. I know from my own personal experience, God, that You're a God who heals and that You heal so that I can be used to help bring healing to others. I thank You, God, for refreshing rain, for new opportunity that we can start over with You. And I pray today, if there's somebody here that's never taken that first step and just saying, God, I'm broken. Sin has really disrupted my life. And I, I need to be forgiven so that I can go forward. I pray, God, that they would just simply ask. If, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin and to help you have a brand new start, you can do it right now. You, all you got to do is ask. And just say, God, I ask You to forgive me. I believe, Jesus, that You came, You died for me so that I could be forgiven and I have a brand new start. And I, and I just ask for it. And I claim it. And I thank You in advance that You've forgiven me so that I can be healed. I want you to stand up. We're not sitting down anymore. It's time to take a stand and move forward. Father God, I pray over every one of us here today that You would give us the courage to confront what needs to be confronted so that we can experience redemption and healing in our lives and that You can use that in the lives of others. Amen.